Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion today, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Ann Hill O, Paul M, Ken S, Jared W, and Brent S. Joining us on the program today is Mr. Bram Vanderelst. Bram is the head of uranium at Curzon Resources, a commodity trading group that deals in various materials, including uranium. The company has involvement in the uranium market via offtake agreements and through its trading expertise. Curzon Resources is based in London, United Kingdom. You can learn more about Curzon via their website, curzonresources.co.uk. Bram, good to have you on the program. How are you? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, good to be back. Um, very good, very good. How are you? Yeah, doing good. Everything's not too bad and uh, continuing to be a, quite an interesting year here. And I think some folks are quite frustrated with the market conditions, but uh, pretty conducive to continue to see this thing just chug along and chop. And I think that's uh, quite constructive, to be honest, over the, uh, the mid to long term here. Bram, just for the audience, so you and I have been chatting for a number of years now, and Bram's a good friend, and he is also a very good and key contact within the network in the uranium sector. Of course, this is the first time on our public version of discussions, but you've been on a private podcast in the past with us. But let's start off with maybe just getting a background from you, Bram, past experience, and really why you found interest in trading and this uh, funny uranium market. Yeah, absolutely. I think as most people in our industry, you sort of roll into it at some point by accident, uh, which was which was the case for me when I, I got approached by Tochu back in 2012 or 2013 um, to go work with them on their nuclear fuel team in, in London. Sort of that was my first interaction into into the uranium market, uh, sort of as, as a challenge and, and, and took it on and so sort of working for Tochu. And then back in 2016, I started chatting with uh, who's now my my business uh, partner in, in Curzon, a guy called Nicholas Clark, is a, is a very um, successful mining and energy entrepreneur. And so we set up Curzon Uranium together. And, and just to clarify, Curzon Uranium is, uh, is Cyprus-based, so Curzon Resources, um, which is our sister company, is London-based, but Curzon Uranium, which is the uranium part of the of the group, is, is based out of Cyprus. And so we set up that uh, company back in 2016. We then started signing some off-day contracts in, uh, in the space, uh, looking at uh, the need for diversification of supply. We sort of predicted uh, to a certain extent what was going to happen with uranium supply and, and we started consolidation in the space and, and thought that at some point in, in, the time, in, in the future there would be need for new sources of material, which uh, we obviously couldn't predict any of the, the events that happened afterwards with um, the, the Ukrainian war and um, the COVID situation and whatnot. But the, it sort of played out in, in a way the, like we predicted. And so that's how we dipped our toe in the uranium market. And then on the back of that, we started um, essentially leveraging my uh, contacts in, in the space and started a uranium trading business. And this was back in 2016, 2017. We had a really slow start to to our entrance in the industry as, as a new entrance. It, it always takes a lot of time and it's a big effort, but also we weren't really helped by the market, which was sort of trading around the 20 to $21 price range for better part of the first year when we were in the market, which was very frustrating to say the least, but um, we, we stuck it through and um, we, we're still around right now. And we actually had a, had a really good, 
good few years, especially um, since, since sort of 2020. And we're definitely a household name right now in our industry. We're probably in that top five to top 10 uh, traders in of, of the commodity. We're very well known, very well respected in, in the space. And so we're, uh, we're, we're proud to say that Curzon Uranium is, um, is a partner that a lot of people in our industry like to do business with and, uh, and, and prefer dealing with. Yeah, a good guy to definitely consider here because your knowledge of the market is very good. And also, I think you guys are a very reputable group that can be workable and flexible with the needs of various companies out there. There's a lot of risk in this market that we all take, of course, but at the same time, I think you guys provide a, a pretty good service and a pretty good bridge to certain needs of the juniors out there that, that might actually get to the day where, you know, cake is in the can, if you will. How about we kick it off here with your thoughts on the market right now and then also what you expect to see you know over the rest of the year bram or maybe uh, trickle into 2024 a bit and you know what are you uh, what are you seeing out there and what do you expect for this year i think where we are right now is is a market that's that's tight tight to know and and illiquid is is the the words to describe where we are at, at this stage. We've been leading up to this timeframe for quite a, a number of years right now. We again predicted this 2017, 2018, where we start seeing inventories being drawn down. We saw the uranium market tipping from an oversupply into an undersupply. And then obviously we saw that snowballing with, with uh, spots coming into the market over the last couple of years and, and, and investors really taking an interest and a position in, in uranium. In, if you then look at the global macro picture, obviously nuclear has, at least in my lifetime, never had a better outlook. Um, it's it's looking like nuclear will be the one of the one of the key sources of baseload energy going forward. Uh, it being obviously um, non CO two emitting, and so that obviously then has its effect on the the underlying uranium market, which feeds off feeds off the nuclear power industry. Uh, and so if you then go back into the uranium market, what we are looking at right now is a market where inventories, inventories have been drawn down quite considerably. Um, we're still in an undersupplied market uh, by quite a long way. We've seen definite sources of secondary supply, mostly from underfeeding and, and re-enrichment. We've seen those dry up or at least tipping into uh, an overfeeding situation, meaning that actually there's secondary demand rather than secondary supply. And we see the market being very, very exposed to new new mines coming online. Um, we've obviously had a, an underinvestment in mines for 10 years past Fukushima. That is a situation that doesn't go away straight away, um, even though that we see more interest and more investment and more in, investor interest in, in the space. But it doesn't mean that you can start a mine from, from scratch uh, in, in, in 12 or 24 months. And so what we're really seeing right now is utilities coming to the market again, um, trying to, to extend their coverage ratios, trying to extend their coverage further out from the sort of 2025 all the way to 2035 and, and some even beyond that to 2040. So there's a renewed interest in long-term contracting. There is a need for material. There's a need for restocking across the across the value chain because uh, we've really destocked to a large extent. Levels of UF6 are UF6 inventory are very low across the value chain. Uh, even levels of, of UTRAIT, which has always been the more available material, have destocked to to a large extent. So we see a market that's really gone back to its basics which is well what comes out of ground needs to go into the value chain into into a reactor sooner that like much sooner and then doesn't go cycle through a a big inventory cycle and that 
translates itself into what we trade most commonly, which is the spot market, where we really see bouts of liquidity and then bouts of illiquid periods, where we see the market being tied to uh, uncommitted prime production coming into the market or spot raising money and, and needing demand, and that really gets the ball rolling for a bit, and then the market sort of grinds to a halt again. And so if you look at the rest of the year, I think we look at a, at a market that's ripe for uh, potentially some disruption. Um, I weigh my words carefully because a lot of it depends also on the continued investor interest and the discretion decision-making by the utilities and how aggressively and how quickly they're going to do their coverage. But we see a market that's positive and a market that's ripe for ticking higher. Let's put it that way. Graham, talk about just a little bit what you're seeing right now, you know, let's say late 2022 and into 2023 here in terms of the market transactions activity in the spot market specifically. I mean, we know that the term obviously is doing uh, quite well here and there's a lot of term activity going on compared to previous years, which is very good. But talk about with respect to some of the trading is there a lot of material out there at this point? Uh, you know, obviously we know that there's some spot market dumpers that come in, of course, and put material in here. But talk about that, and then let's also tie that in a little bit here with the fuel cycle and what we're seeing on the conversion enrichment prices. And just give the audience a little bit of flavor for what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, looking into this market and conducting some activity. Yeah, it's very discretionary, I, sh I would say. So we got to real periods of, of dryness um, where, like. A Going back to December, for example, there it was probably one of the quietest December's I've ever experienced, where it wasn't really all that much transaction uh, or all that much interaction. And actually, it started earlier. Like we came out of the summer and into a lull in the equity markets, which had an impact on spots trading at a discount to NAV, and that sort of made the markets look at or made the, the players in the market look at the market slightly differently now you didn't have spot there as, as a buyer so a lot of players sort of decided to take a step back and sort of reassess which meant that the spot market wasn't all that active in, in q4 uh, at least not on, on a day-to-day on -day basis and then came came around q1 where spot all of a sudden started raising money again um, and at the same time we saw some of that material that was uncommitted in, in Q4 last year that had been changing hands among the traders for a while that ultimately all, always needs to find their way into a final destination or um, something like Sprout or Yellowcake that, that sequesters the material for longer. What we really saw in Q1 when there was a lot of money raised from Sprout and, and they actually came into quite a bit of material and that was just an overhang from essentially four or five months where they hadn't raised any money and uncommitted material that sort of build up a tiny bit and, and, and that needed to flush into the market, which is also why we didn't really see a big price um, price interact or price um, rally while Spot was raising money. Right now, I would say the market is, is, is a bit more liquid than I've seen it the last few months. Um, there's a bit more interest from the, your traditional traders and your traditional players to, to do something on that market, but it's still, it's still quite discretionary. We've also seen utilities pick up a bit of Spot material here and there. Um, that's that's also tied to their views on where the market is. And I would almost say if you look at pricing, you'd, you see the market obviously cycle through uh, to, to short-term booms and busts, or at least price peaks and troughs. You see the troughs being always slightly higher and people readjusting their expectations. And so where 45 was maybe the bottom um, in Q4, you see that bottom closer to 50 right now. Um, and that's and that also then sets sets off inter a new interaction amongst natural buyers, like uh, whether it be a primary producer or utilities, 
who are more keen of picking up material at higher levels because they've sort of changed their perception of where the market is. And typically uranium's always been trading in, in sort of in ranges. So it's always been range band. And, and we see the, the, the evolution of these this ranges higher and higher. And then, yeah, as I said, like the, the spot market is sometimes really sitting on your hands and, and waiting for better times. And sometimes it's, uh, it's as, as busy as you can be and, and you need all hands on deck. So it's, it really goes through, it goes to, to phases and it's hard to predict it because some of it is dependent on when certain prime producers need to put them till through the market, either direct or via traders. Sometimes it's, uh, the booze of the, the underlying equity markets that, that pumps prot or, um, let it trade at a discount. Um, these sort of, uh, sort of main two, two things that are currently driving in my, in my view. Right. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing some more competition come into this market. And I'll come back to that here in a moment because uh, we got something else to talk about on that front. Increased competition is coming and that's going to put some good fireworks on the spot market here as we move on. And then I'm just excited to see the term contracting side. As you know, as some of the majors uh, complete their books, how this is going to trickle right into the junior segment term contracting is going to be quite an exciting place to be monitoring not only this year, but in the years ahead and where utilities actually get material. And of course, uh, there's going to be agreements for material that may never get supplied. We're moving into that next stage, if you will, that things are getting continued interesting here in spite of what some investors would see at this point or would probably say, you know, I've been pretty beat up over the last year. Again, this sector requires patience. We've been here for a long time and we get the attitude of the market quite well. But uh, Bram, why don't we talk briefly about the spot market structure and get your view on this? Because I think, you know, there's some people that have some different opinions out there on this issue. You've seen last cycle, the spot market structure itself in terms of liquidity and transparency is quite a bit different today, arguably better compared to 2007. Do you believe the market conditions can lead to notable price spikes, or do you think that the structure would really prevent that this time around? Of course, I'm very one-sided on this issue, but I think it's good because some participants question this. What's your view on the spot market structure today versus last cycle? It's a difficult question, and um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of questions in, in what you just described, but let me try to unpack it a bit. Ultimately, can prices spike in this cycle as much as they did last cycle? Yes, they definitely can. Um, will there be certain fail-safe mechanisms that will prevent it from spiking as aggressively? Um, yes, also certainly. There is there's a lot more liquidity. There's a lot more experience now in this market. Um, don't, don't forget, in 2007 or 2006, 2007, you markets had been beaten up for for years and it's it, it was the market with that was perceived as a commodity there was much less interest um or there's much less traders around there's much less um activity and it was much more sort of a long-term long-term market right now we've gone through um a, a phase of 15 years where the traders interest uh, whether it be independent or um, or linked to a primary producer or utility for that matter um, have really established themselves. There is more investment. There's more um, different different products out there, um, or at least they've, they've they've really matured. And so our market's also 
through need more than by design, they needed to adapt to market conditions. And so our market has really been, has really changed into a market where it's, it's, it's almost become a financial market. So the carry trade has been very, very relevant all the way from 2011 onwards to, or even before that, but 2011 to, to 2020, where the, the main trade was like, try to displace forward demand into, into current demand by doing a carry trade. Um, right now, and that's one of the reasons why I said inventory is destocking, we see, we see the, the reverse, we see the reverse carry trade where people with material on their books are willing to let go of some of that material when there is, there's temporary price spikes to buy it back at, at later stages from, um, from, a, from a producer or from somebody else who is willing to sell material in, in later years. And so that sort of comes back to your earlier comments about what's happening in the, in the mining sector. And what we see is that, yes, the primary the, or the major primary producers, the big ones that have been around for a while, they have really had their fill on, on contract book and they were the ones that utilities turned to the first when they started realizing actually this market might be heading higher quite sustainably. And therefore, well, let, let's go talk to these guys and let's go talk to salespeople and, and, and get a slice of that. They've become more picky in, in what they want to see in their contracts, uh, whether it be market linked or for higher fixed prices. And so they've really they've signed less contracts, which means that as a fuel buyer, you then go to the next year, which is for well, why don't I sort of look at the juniors and, and see if I can get some primary production from, from them. Or as a 30, you go to the uh, the traders uh, or the, the carry trades and you say, can I can I get some material from you on, on a carry trade basis where you just lock it up and, and put it in a can for the next five years and I'll buy it off you when, when I need it. But the carry trade has been hammered by higher, higher interest rates uh, and higher inflation rates. And so that's been a tough one, even though that we see that playing out now in, in sort of the midterm because it's really not like the midterm is really, really tight. 24, 25 is a very tight space. And we see the carry trade being being supported there. On the longer term, 25 to 2030 and, and beyond, you see, especially the junior uh, contingent, to tell utilities, yes, we can produce by that point uh, as long as we've got the right support and the right contract book. And that means that we can fulfill your demand out there. And that's what I meant earlier with when I said, well, we're, we're moving back into a sort of a fundamental market where it needs to come out of the ground to be supplied into future demand. And that obviously comes out at a bunch of risks any delay in production for whatever reason, and there's a hell of a lot of reasons why mines, uh, whether it be brownfield or greenfield projects, wouldn't come into production. That means that some of those contracts won't be fulfilled and that certain utilities or other off-takers will be left um, with material that they need to cover elsewhere and, and they, they're going to need to jump into the spot market for that. And so I guess to answer your, your major question, can we see spikes in the market? Um, yes, because we are in a market right now where some of the buffers, uh, which is levels of inventory that can be reverse carried or uh, alternative supplies through underfeeding or any sort of other alternative supply, whether it be loans from Japanese utilities that don't need the material for a while, those kind of things are less easy to come by. They're less easy to get. And that means that you're exposing your market or the spot market is already thinly traded and already quite illiquid to big price jumps if there's enough money or if there's enough interest coming into the space and it's anybody's guess how much money from outside investors can come into this space when it truly takes off and and what we've seen in the past is that it's always that the first 50 to 100 million is always hard and then when the ball gets rolling more and more interest it gets more and more interest and it's before you know you raise a couple billion like sprout it so that could happen again and because we've we're in a different situation than even now then when Sprout came in and let alone comparing it to 2007, you could see that really jumping in part like the other structure of the market that that's 
in a way, well, that's similar, but that also will allow for price spikes is the fact that the people with material are probably going to want to see the market higher and therefore are happy to just sit back and and see the market go higher and only start putting material or pushing material into the market as and when they, they see their incentive pricing. Um, and that's not just primary miners, but uh, there are certain people who have got long-term views or have been sitting on this market for a while, but uh, there's really not all that much material left that can, can sustainably come into the market if there's really a lot of demand and on top of that, a lot of invested demand flowing into our space. Right. And it's all backstopped at the end of the day with term contracts. I mean, and this is all arguable amongst the, the C-suites in the sector with respect to where we sign contracts, the no risk nature for utilities in some cases on some of these contracts to just say, well, we'll, we'll sign a contract and if these guys deliver, they deliver, but we've already taken the appropriate steps to make sure that this is backed up with other contracts in the case that some of these new juniors fail, which we know will. What's just interesting about it all is, you know, you underpin any operations, whether it's new builds or restarts by firm contracts. And then, of course, there's the question, Bram, of, of scale and so forth with some of these. But if I can interact or interject there for a second, what I would like where you say, for example, that utilities are double covered because they've got some exposure to juniors, but they're, they're, they're covered without a contract. It's we see a lot of utilities also using like expendable terms with with producers or with existing producers. And so, for example, where you sign a, a long-term contract and you have certain volume flexibility that you can flex up if you need to. And, and it would obviously invoke that if the one of their junior their contracts wouldn't deliver for whatever reason. But that, that doesn't mean that new material is created out of thin air. That's material that that producer then needs to funnel into this contract that they might have overcommitted themselves or they they thought they would have it for, for some other re like for some other project. And that that's no longer there because this utility is calling that material right now. And that's something that they're going to do at, at the last moment. So it's, it's not like there is just a, a, a pot of material sitting somewhere that we can dip into. Like we, we're going to have to produce that out of the ground and we're seeing the right steps being taken. We're seeing juniors making the right uh, strides to, to production. We're seeing expanded production from some of the, the major producers um, who are diligently putting into contracts. But it's a market that's very prone for disruption if anything goes wrong in that in that mining game. Absolutely. Very big questions surrounding where this material actually comes from at the end of the day. We're going to be able to see quite a bit of this play out over the next few years for sure. Let's uh, talk just on another topic, you know, get your perspective, Bram, with respect to how you guys look at your clientele. Um, you know, of course, there's institutions, utilities, and uranium juniors out there that fall into your clientele area. But when you guys evaluate this, when you look at this market, I mean, you know, Bram, even you and I looking at this market over the last, say, five years, it's changed so much with respect to personalities, with respect to some of the players, the progress of certain companies. But when you guys look out at the market and you're looking for a deal to get done that's beneficial for both parties, you know, how do you evaluate these when you look at jurisdiction, when you look at uh, the stage of the company, the people, which which is so, so I can't underscore that much, the personalities of these people, uh, good grief. I mean, it's really a diversity in that respect. But how do you guys approach that and what do you kind of look out for as, you know, key things that you guys want to see in a relationship and maybe things that you don't find that appealing? It all starts with having a believable project, uh, a project. And we, we don't look at it from an equity perspective. So we don't look at the project 
with regards to the equity doing well or, or doing bad. We don't really care about it aside from the fact that they will be able to find us or not. But we look at it, is, is the resource okay? Uh, that's where it starts from. Is, is it a, is a decent project with, with good resource characteristics that might make it amenable to go into production at a somewhat decent price? As you highlighted, you've got all the other attributes to look at. You've got to look at the management team. Are they credible? What do they want? Do they want to push their, the stock price or do they actually want to go into production? You have to look at the jurisdiction and jurisdiction is, is a very difficult one um, because in a way you want to be in a good jurisdiction. You want to be in Canada or Australia, which uh, would have all the right mining codes and are very proper, but it also comes with a lot of risks like the environmental permitting process takes ages, the uh, mining permits take ages, and it's, it's well, it's well described processes, but they just really take a lot of time and, um, and, and a lot of things can upset those in some of the, I mean, if you're talking about Africa, for example, which we, we do a lot of work in, like some, some of these things are easier, but uh, there, there's also a lot of jurisdictional risk out there. Like uh, it's not unseen in Africa that certain countries go through coups or that they go through a change of government, which might change the, the way they look at their, their commodity sectors completely and therefore might derail the project to the extent that it's never going to get built. Uh, same in the CIS countries. So jurisdiction is, is one that it's hard to classify formally, but it's something that we really look at a, at a lot as well. And then it's really like, how can we work with them? We are, and we've seen a massive shift in, in how people want to work with us and how they've, uh, how they've worked with us in the past. We see, like uh, if, if I'd gone to a junior five years ago, it would be a very different discussion than, uh, with a junior today. Right now, they've been, been having discussions with utilities, uh, a lot of them at least. And so slotting a trader into their, uh, off their contract book is, of less importance, even though I, I would argue that it's actually quite important because we would offer a lot of flexibilities that utilities can't, but that as a side note, whereas five years ago, not a single utility would, would touch any of the juniors and, and didn't think they would need to in, in the future. So juniors would be a lot more amenable to signing contracts with, with somebody like ourselves. So that's definitely a change. And then it's about the commerciality of the, of the transaction. Um, we offer flexibilities, but we also want to see certain things um, in, in our favor. And, and that's where you try to find a win-win situation where we can provide something that other actors in the space can't and we get access to material that we might otherwise not have and, and that's the way that we've been able to build a sustainable and quite diversified book on, on our end which then ultimately um, helps us when we are marketing our material because we need to market our material as well we're not the final use of material so that's sort of the role that we play in, in this space very good points and insights on that bram and such a difficult market to navigate and then as you said just the personality changes and the differences we've seen over the last few years, uh, quite substantial. And it's always difficult on that front too, to, to gauge people and what their needs are and what their motivations are. And of course, uh, quite a challenge to get through all that and then finally get to an agreement that everybody can sign on to and, and can finally move this down the road. And we see a big variety of, of approaches in this space. Um, we see people who clearly have zero interest in ever going into production, but really want to want to push their their stock and, and, and their story. You've got people who are quietly really like chugging away at it and, and want to go into production, but don't like maybe lack some of the marketing. Uh, you see people who do or like juniors who do it much better and, and who are really working with utilities, um, but are maybe sort of uh, 
don't really consider the financing uh, as, as much as they should because financing is, is another thing that really takes a lot of time and effort, even if you have contracts. Uh, and then you've got other people who are really focused on financing and I have to raise equity and, and finance and raise capital and, and finance, but they are maybe lacking on some of the operational aspects of things. Because uh, uh, and, and a mine needs all of those. Uh, building a mine, whether it be Granfield or Greenfield, it needs all of those aspects. And a lot of it is chicken and egg, and that, that's what we see as well. A lot of a lot of juniors want to finance, but to finance you need contract book. But to get a contract book, you need to show that you can go into production and you need financing. So that variety of approaches that is also reflected in the variety of management that we see out there and their characteristics. Absolutely. No, and we've even seen some try to start taking victory laps here a little bit premature in my view. But, uh, <laughs> so let's move on to a new physical uranium fund that is out there, the Zuri Invest Uranium AMC Fund. Talk about the fund in general and what it aims to do. Yes, so we are um, linked to them in a sense that we will provide advice for them on the physical market. So Zero Invest is a Swiss asset manager who have been in the mining space for over 20 years. Um, and they are launching, as you said, a physical uranium AMC. And, and AMC stands for Actively Managed Certificate. It's it's an it's another way it's an, or it's another instrument for investors to get exposure um, into the physical space. And where they dive differentiate themselves from the likes of Sprout or Yellow Cake or some of the other lookalike investors uh, or lookalike investor products is that they try to provide exposure for larger cap or larger pools of capital directly into the underlying physical without trading on a secondary exchange. Uh, and so the way that you buy the MC is just you, you go to your broker, you put in an order and the order will get filled at the net asset value of the, uh, of the AMC. The net asset value of the AMC is, is simply calculated as the amount of pounds of uranium that it holds times the price of uranium um, plus the cash. And therefore, because it doesn't trade on secondary market and it always trades at net asset value, you're always getting the value of uranium. It's a key part of it because as an investor, what you want is you want a uranium exposure without needing to set up your own uranium trading team and, and, and try to really be, become a physical trader. But you want to take exposure to the, the price of the uranium. And so this is a vehicle that's, that's perfectly suited for that. It's, it's trading out of or it's um, managed out of Switzerland through, a, through an orphaned SPV structure. And it's really meant to give that, that exposure to the, the market in a frictionless way of as much as possible. And, and essentially what, uh, where we get involved as Curs and we, we work with Zuri Invest on providing the information on the physical market. We'll help them with finding the material in the physical markets um, as and when they get orders in for the AMC. It will get right to a paying agent, but the orders will get right to us to make sure that we can provide a coverage on the uranium market. And so we will go find them the material, buy it for the SPV, and then the SPV will hold and store it. So the investors know that it's secure as well. Um, so it's in, in a way, it's, it's similar to the uh, existing players out there, but it's also very, very different. And, and it offers certain things that are better, certain things that uh, are different that we hope that would really sit well with investors. And Bram, talk about a little bit more here on details uh, for investors that are looking to use this type of vehicle. What are the requirements in terms of minimum funding, management fee, and also highlight the redemption because this is also a bit different. Minimum investment side is $100,000. So as I said, it's it's for larger institutions or for larger investors. Uh, and that's just a function of how, the, how it's operated in, in the background. 
as you said, it, it does offer a redemption uh, feature, and that is important. Zero Invest needs to keep the the price of the of the EMC um, trading at net asset value, and that means that you'd uh, you'd have to offer a redemption feature, otherwise you're uh, you, you can quickly deviate from your net asset value. And so essentially, investor that wants to pull out their money can can always um, pull out their money. Put a sell order into that to their broker that order will then be fulfilled from cash if there's any cash available and if there's no cash available then the the underlying uranium will get sold to free up the cash and, and redeem the investor and, and that means that you're you're always as i said before you're always trading at that nurse value and you're always getting the um the underlying physical pricing essentially for, for your amc management fee is uh it's pretty competitive so um it's a 45 bips and we're aiming at an all-in cost of around 1.2 to 1.5. Appreciate that. And when you look at the participants out there, and I know we'll have growing institutional support and demand for this, but when you look at the existing players, the yellow cakes of the world, the sprouts of the world, you know, in the last couple of years since these have been out, that yellow cake has been quite passive. Um, and I'll even say passing on one of their options in one of the option years. Sprott has been fairly motivated out of the gate, but has also demonstrated a few other characteristics that I don't think people expected, uh, whether it be surrounding the listing of the New York Stock Exchange listing that they attempted to go after, the depth test and testing of the market, which they did. But Yellow Cake and Sprott really haven't competed with one another, in my view, not directly. Yeah, sure, there's some indirect consequences of this, but this is actually going to provide some more competition because this is a group that is active in the market and yellow cake isn't that active they kind of rely upon their option and that's yeah more or less it but i think this provides competition so how do you see this i mean when you look at existing players looking at this new fund that you guys will be uh, providing your expertise with you know how do you see this do you think this gets people motivated yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've um, we've obviously done uh, quite a lot of work in the background already, um, and Zuri Invest definitely has. And well, first of all, we are looking at uh, certain geographical diversification. So we are launching out of Switzerland, and we so in our, our home market, um, we'll try to, um, to get as much funds in from there. But that doesn't mean that we can't compete in in the the markets that Yellowcake and, and Spot are active in, and or uh, if anything in Asia, because there's definitely a lack of. Um, of this kind of uh, exposure vehicle that provides exposure in Asia. In a way, we we are different, but we also we will need like we will be comp competition to these guys. And in a way that uh, I keep going on about the, the net asset value, and, and this is something that you highlighted when you said Pialogic hasn't been active. And the reason they haven't been active is because it didn't manage to be active because they couldn't raise money when their share price is trading at a discounted net, net asset value. And Sprout has the same same issue. It's been less. Problem, but it's 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 an issue that they face as well at times where uh, for a couple of months they can't raise any money because they're trading at a, at a discounted asset value, and that's a function of them being exposed to the underlying or the uh, the overall equity markets. When the sentiment in the equity markets globally or commodities globally is negative, they see that reflected in their share price, and, and that means that they can't um, raise money and therefore can't really trade the uranium space. Whereas what the EMC offers uh, and the way that Zuri Investors set it up is that you're not exposed to the equity market. You essentially trade uranium. You buy and sell uranium at net asset value of the EMC. And if the EMC or if the uranium market is trading at 60, you're going to trade 60. The uranium market is trading at 40, you're going to trade 40. If it's trading at 100, you're going to trade at 100, regardless of where the, the overall equity markets are. And I think that's really where 
we see a lot of traction from bigger pools of capital because they want to allocate money to uranium as a commodity. They want to allocate it to the space and they have plenty of exposure in all of their other products to global equity markets and they, they want to have that exposure reflected in their uranium pricing. And so that's really where we see a gap in the market. But obviously that also means that some of the funds that are currently deployed in, in some of these other vehicles can be moved into into the zoo invest vehicle or or vice versa and there will probably be a, a certain amount of interaction between the two the two or the three different funds as well money be moving between all three of them i'm just excited to see this finally get out there i know we haven't been able to talk about it for quite a while and i'm, I'm glad that this is uh, finally hitting the market here and i think it will do some pretty good things with respect to what it offers what you said leads me just to ask you two other things the structure of yellow cake is just not amenable to be able to override, if you will. And let's use an example. I mean, for a period of time, we always had $30 uranium. Some of these vehicles trade at a discount, but the underlying price of uranium is very attractive. And if you've done any work at that price point is quite uh, compelling to buy. And it's almost like, you know what, the price of uranium is so good here. Yes, we're trading at a discount, but let's override here issue capital and go after this. To me, that type of lever to pull can be quite beneficial. At least it would have been beneficial in the past. You know, as the price increases here, you're really doing yourself a disservice if you do get into discount mode. I think a piece of that discount, Bram, too, and looking at this over a number of years is not only the sentiment piece of it, but then also investors discount the activity, maybe some of the management costs and fees. The junior example, Bram, for example, oh yeah, we've we've got this great asset and, you know, we have X cash on the books and, you know, we're trading at such a discount, we're even discounted to cash. Well, the reason for that is, is investors have discounted the fact that management's going to burn through that cash. And so it's obviously already discounted in. I know it's not apples to apples, but it's similar. But what's your thoughts on just the ability to be able to look if the commodity price is right? Yes, we're at a discount, but let's go get it anyway. Every investor needs to have their own view on that. And I've had plenty of interactions with investors where they said, look, actually, I like the discount because it allows me to buy uranium at, at a discounted value, essentially, um, compared to the physical market. And that's that's true, but you're still exposed to that gap even widening. And, and you're essentially taking two exposures. You're taking your uranium pricing exposure. You're taking your, your gap exposure here. And that's something that Zero Invest didn't want to offer in their product where they said, no, we want investors to have exposure to the underlying. So with a very simple example, if your rating prices go from 50 and you invest in, and they go to 60, you want to crystallize that $10 rise in your rating prices. But if your rating prices go from 50 and they go to 60, but you're at the same time, you're trading at a 10% discount, you've only crystallized $4 and, and you haven't had the benefit of that, that rise in, in pricing. It could be the other way around, and, and obviously this is something that works both sides. But as you pointed out very, very correctly, it's becoming more and more relevant as the uranium price is higher and higher. Um, at $30, whether you're picking it up at uh, the pricing equivalent of 27 or, or 33 it didn't really matter because the underlying macro showed that uranium prices need to go higher and considerably higher. At $50 or $60 or, or, or let's say $70 or $80, it becomes more important. And you want to make sure that if you've got a positive outlook, that you're not going to get derailed by general market actions. 
that's really where this product is is different and i think where it, it could do very well and we've also had interactions with a lot of uh, of funds who want to deploy capital and who are deploying too much capital to go into some of these other vehicles uh, unless when they're raising when they're raising publicly but uh, on open market actions because the liquidity isn't there and uh, what this amc is offering is physical uranium equivalent liquidity uh, granted it's not the best but it provides more liquidity than some of the um some of the juniors or some of the equities we are providing right now where uh even a million dollars can can move the market so that's really where it's different right no and there is of course that arbitrage opportunity with respect to you know the discounted units versus you know actually having physical material to be able to leverage as well on the trading side you know in the interim as this market progresses, uh, do you see that uh, this particular fund may or may not trade material in the interim? What's your thoughts on the trading portion of it? No, it, it won't trade at all. So there will be no discretion decision making on the trading side. Um, the Zuri Invest guys are um, only offering access to market. And so they will buy uranium as money comes into it and maximize um, the cash position as much as possible to put it into the spot market and buy spot, spot market uranium. They will only ever sell material when um, investors want to pull their money out and when there's no liquidity in the fund to provide them and therefore they need to create the liquidity to, to um, by selling uranium. That's, those are the only two actions they'll take and there will be no discretionary trading because that muddies the water and they've taken the view that we they didn't want to muddy the water. They want to have a clean, very clean and clear investor exposure to the underlying physical uranium without building additional exposures to the trading or trading sentiment in there. So on this one in particular, where's a place or maybe a, an email that investors who have that capability to, you know, high net worth investors who want to look at this vehicle, is there a website or a particular email or a person they should contact? Yes. So they can go to the Zuri Invest website, which is Zuri-invest.ch and they'll find all the information under the, uh, under the products, products section out there. And there they can register their interest and they will get contacted by the Zoom Invest team to give them all the information needed. And then ultimately they can go to their broker and uh, put an order into their, uh, to their standard equities broker because it hit um, the product is trading with an ISIN number and you can look up the, the product on Bloomberg and you can, uh, you can put into your, uh, your order through the uh, standard broker. Excellent. Well, let's leave it there. I know you got to get going and same here as well, but uh, for institutions, utilities and uranium juniors out there who might be listening in, why should they contact you and Curzon for trading and offtake services? All for different reasons, uh, but for the juniors should contact us because we would uh, provide something that others can't provide to them in terms of offtake. We can provide flexibility across years, across locations, across um, yeah, pricing structures, which might be a bit more rigid on the utility side. On utilities contacting us, um, we can provide uh, a variety of sources and, uh, and essentially in, in our market, um, where your material is coming from is becoming more and more more important and so you want to be diversified you don't want to be um, contracting with three people who all get their material out of Kazakhstan for example and so that's really where we can be a diversifier for utilities and for institutional investors um, well I would say first first point of contact should be the Zuri Invest guys to um, to see if they, they want to get some leverage through the MC but also we're always happy to talk, talk through the markets with those investors and, and see if um, there's something to be done directly with, with Curzon as well. Bram, best way for folks to reach out? To me, that would be um, either on my uh, direct email, uh, which is bv.curzonresources.co.uk, or um, they can always try to call me as well. I'm sure they can get my contact details directly from yourself. Bram, 
thanks for the time today again, and we'll plan on chatting soon. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much, Andrew. Appreciate it.